Good morning. As we begin our study on Romans chapter 9, I want to remind us from Acts, Peter is speaking to the people, and he said, this promise is for you and for your children and for everyone who is far away. The gospel is for those next to us and those whom we've never seen. The gospel is for everyone. As we turn to chapter 9, we see that Romans 9 is about God's righteousness and the history of God's relationship with Israel. If a word is consistent throughout scripture, but especially in the chapters 9, 10, and 11, and they go together, so I want you to really hang on to them because in the next few weeks, we're going to unwrap uh, those chapters and they're important that they stay together. But if there's a word that I had for us, it would be mercy, God's mercy. And if we just hold on to that, um, as we look at this letter to the Romans, the way that God is speaking to us, fulfilling his ancient promise through the person of Jesus Christ and what that means to each of us. So we begin a new section and it starts in chapter nine in God's relationship with Israel and the Gentiles. It continues, as I said, through chapter 11 and the three chapters go together, a progression of them. God's righteousness first in history, and that's what we will look at today. That's in chapter 9. God's righteousness of in faith, and that begins in verse 30 of chapter 9. and goes through verse 21 of chapter 10. And then God's righteousness to Jews and Gentiles, and that is in chapter 11. Um, the presenting issue that we're looking at in chapter 9 is that the elect of God, Israel, has not accepted or embraced the Messiah, Jesus. A series of questions or perceived accusations are made. Uh, the first one has God's promise failed. And we look at that in verses 6 through 13. And is God unjust? That's the second question. That's verses 14 through 18 of chapter 9. And then why does God blame or find fault in us? And that's chapter 9, that's verses, excuse me, 19 through 29. It is good to remember as we begin the study that it follows the great assurance of Romans 8, 39. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The Messiah is from the Jewish people according to the flesh, in his flesh and blood reality. But he is also the Lord of all. The incarnate God who claims the allegiance of people of every race and of every nation. And those are just words from Tom Keller and um, N.T. Wright. It's good to remember as we begin this study that nothing will separate us from the love of God. So let us begin with a prayer. Gracious and holy God, this is a big chapter. This is a difficult chapter, Lord. There have been so many opinions and ideas and thoughts about this, so we ask your Holy Spirit to guide us. Open our minds, Lord. Help us to be patient as we walk through this chapter and also chapter 10 and 11, that we might see the full story of what Paul is referring to in this. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to look at this as quickly as we can and still make sense of it and uh, beginning in the first three verses. So Paul is speaking and Paul is full, absolutely full of grief towards his own flesh and blood. And the language there 
is uh, is one of great angst, one of great sorrow. And it's interesting that he said, I'm telling the truth. I wouldn't lie to you. The Holy Spirit is my conscience of this. He's The Holy Spirit convicts me that this is is true. And my, I, I'm, I'm brokenhearted for this. Wow, the first thing I think of is that this is what I want for my pastor, that my pastor would care so deeply about me and what's going on that his heart would be broken if my faith in any way faltered. If in any way I decided to to neglect or desert or to or or to forget the God who loves me. And so Paul speaks out. It's a real desire um, of Paul to have his people, his kinsmen, believe. And he even says, I I, I would I would give up I would give up my assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ if they would just accept Jesus Christ. I cannot think of anything more powerful than that. I don't know about you, but I've thought about times where people would say, oh, I wish it could just happen to me rather than them. Oftentimes, not a fault of their own, but perhaps one of your kids or, or somebody you know gets in trouble with the law and the consequences are dire, and you just think, oh, if I could just take it from them, if I could just carry that burden so that they didn't have to. That's the language that Paul is using here. He is so distraught. He loves, he loves his people, and he sees that they've rejected Jesus. And so that's the rest of the chapter. We're unfolding that. Now, out of Paul's love, he begins to tell them the story of God and his relationship with Israel. Verses four and five, he talks about all the attributes um, given by God to the Israelites. They are God's chosen people. They have been adopted. Uh, they bring glory. There is a covenant promise with God. He's given them the law, the worship and how they worship and all the promises. Everything is there. The promise is given through the patriarchs to a coming Messiah. That's given to them. They are a people that God has called to be his own. The adoptions of son we see in Exodus 4.22 and other places where Israel is called God's son. This should have prepared Israel for Jesus, teaching that through him we can approach God on intimate terms, such as Abba. And Jesus calls the father Abba in Mark 14. The divine glory refers to God as a visible glory, the cloud, the call the Shekinah, the manifestation of his presence with the people of Israel, especially going out of Egypt, the dwelling in their midst in the tabernacle and in the temple. And again, in, in Exodus 29, we see that and in 1 Kings 8, and yet Jesus is greater, is a greater manifestation of God's presence. The word became flesh and made its dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. And it's from John 1. The covenants refer to God's making a relationship through, with the people, first through Abraham in, in Genesis 15, though you see glimpse of that in Genesis 12, go and I'm going to make you a people. And then the covenant promise in Genesis 15, and then Moses in Exodus 24, you're going to be my people. And David, the promise of David and the lineage of David in 2 Samuel. In each case, God creates a relationship with them and promises to bless them through the Messiah who will come. 
So we see that introduction. And then in verses 6 through 9, Paul begins to talk about the heirs of God, chosen by God. God's word has not failed. Paul anticipates what the people are thinking. The question would be, well, didn't God fail then because the Jews aren't believing at the time? So few. Uh, they, the Jews hadn't responded the way that that Paul had hoped, the way, Peter, the way that, that they really thought the gospel was going out. It hadn't responded. So it's logical that we say, well, has God failed? No. He anticipates this and he goes, the children are of a children of promise, not just the children of flesh. And he uses the example of Isaac and Ishmael. Abraham was chosen before the law. He didn't qualify because of the law. Um, the descendants, all the descendants of Abraham are chosen. Some are racially descendants from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not true Israel. And others who are not physically descendants from them, as Paul has said before in chapter 4, um, are. And so it's a God thing. It's a promise that God gives us. And the reference, again, is to faith and righteousness. And chapter 10, we'll talk a lot more about that. It's not a matter of biology or parentage. And that's just really important to grasp a hold of because it's a promise that God brings to a people. And in verse in verses 7 and 8, it's not a, a matter of, of God continuing gracious it's a matter, excuse me, of God's continuing gracious promise. That is why Abraham's line continued through Isaac. He was the child of promise rather than Ishmael, the firstborn child of Abraham's flesh. And here's the deal. Old Testament, it hasn't changed a whole lot for a lot of people. Like the firstborn, they're the ones that, that they're the ones who are the chosen. They're the ones who take over. They've even done study, firstborn children supposedly do better it's like because I'm not a firstborn child than all the other siblings. And, and so you just see this and it's like, it's not of the flesh, it's of God's promise. See, Abraham thought that he could figure out what God really needed because he was impatient. And so uh, he, he takes uh, another woman, Hagar, and he has Ishmael and he thinks, well, that's the promise. And God said, no, 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 that flesh is not the flesh where I've made the promise. The promise is for you uh, through Isaac. And so he makes that promise. And that story is just told in there just as a reminder that it's about the promise of God. And then in verses 10 through 13, God's purpose through Isaac and Jacob. And, and Paul goes on to say, God elects those whom God calls. And that is to say, it's not based on works. It's not related to being good or bad. There is, a, um, there is a sense that somehow we can earn our way or somehow Abraham really, he was a righteous man, so he deserved it. Well, if you look at Abraham, he blew it a lot. Isaac blew it a lot. Jacob blew it. It's the God who doesn't blow it who makes that promise. Um, the word elect, that's one of the first times we see this here. And um it's a, it's a difficult word in this passage. What do you mean God elects some and not others? It seems so unfair. And I just want to quote um, from Luther, Martin Luther, said it follows irrefutably. 
One does not become a son of God and an heir of the promise by descendant, but by the gracious election of God. You say that and remind us so that we don't think somehow that we've earned this and others have not, or that even the people of Israel thought, well, I should, I've just earned this because I've, I've been called by God. Well, that's the promise. It's a God work, not based on your, on your merit or what you're doing. And um, this is the point Paul is making, that Paul is showing that God's purpose of blessing all humanity through an elect people cannot be frustrated with some of those who belong physically to that people, reject that purpose. So even those that are in that promise and they reject God, it will not thwart what God is going to do because God is a God of promise and God will follow through. Then we see the example of Jacob and Esau. Once again, Jacob is a second child. Esau is born first. So you have the younger over the older. And that was decided before they were born. So once again, don't say, well, it was because Jacob was better. He was nicer. He, in, If you look again at Jacob, you'll be, oh, really? Why, why did you pick him? I mean, I'm, I'm not really positive about this one. But God did it before they were born, before they had an a, a opportunity to be good or bad. It was God's choice. God is in control of this. God is the one who elects, and God is the one whom we trust even when it vexes us, even when we do not fully understand it. And be at peace because God is the one who's in control. Um, he goes on to say, and that scripture that I think really, really, really throws us off that um, I have loved uh, Jacob and hated Esau. We think, what did Esau do? Why would God hate him? The language that's used here is one of priority. It's not one of, um, of, of true hatred as you and I think about hatred. Think about the story where Jesus... Um, in Luke 14, and he's with his family, and but he's talking to his disciples, or his family needs him. He's talking to his disciples, and he said, whoever loves your brother or sister or mother more than me can't be a part of me, because our priorities get confused. And God loved Esau. He had a plan for Esau. Less for, I mean, a plan for Jacob. Let me say that whole thing again. Reverse that for a second. Um, God had a love for Jacob and a plan for Jacob. He loved Esau less in terms of the plan God had. So be very, very careful when we think, wow, he hated him. No, it, it's, a, it's a, a degree of love. And he had a plan for Jacob. And that is God who is doing that. Um, and the only reason why Jacob received the promise was because of God's grace's choice. Again, that choice was made before that man was born. In his mother's womb, that choice was made. So then God now, in the next several verses, um, we're going to look at God's mercy, and as specifically Romans 14 through 18. And again, it's all historical. Paul continues to go back and talk about the history so in verses 14 through 18, you have a rhetorical defense of God's sovereign act. Is God unjust? Paul states, again, what we're all thinking. If God 
chooses to have mercy and compassion on whomever you want to. How can that, that be just? But here's the defense, and it goes from verse 14 through 18. It's not, um, it's God's sovereign act, not God's attributes, which decides this. It's God's sovereign act. I am who I am. It's kind of what God said. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whomever I wish to have compassion. And that is saying when, when everyone wants to know, well, who are you? Well, I am who I am. This is who I am, God is saying. And um, if you look again, Abraham is picked not because he followed the Torah. Jacob picked and Uterine, no meriting or forfeiting or, um, or forfeiting of the blessing made that happen when Esau said, I'll give you my blessing. God made it happen. And God revealed his son to Paul while Paul was murdering Christians. God went after Paul at the very depth of Paul's sin when he was murdering Christians. So we go to verse 16. There is a human desire or effort. Um, no human desire or effort will bring mercy. We are dependent on God for mercy. We can't pick mercy. Um, mercy is given to us. It is a gift. It's defined um, not as an obligation. So you get pulled over for being uh, speeding, uh, something I, I do on occasion every more often than I should. Uh, but if I'm pulled over for speeding, I may get mercy. But let me tell you, for me to expect that I would have mercy because I'm 20 miles or 10 miles over the speed limit, that should, I, I don't have that right. That is not in my power to give. That nice police officer may say, I'm going to give you a pass on this, but um, that would be a merciful thing. But I don't deserve that mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, and that's God. God is being merciful because we've all sinned. We all need that grace of God. John Zott said this, Paul's ways of defending God's justice is to proclaim his mercy. It sounds like a complete non sequitur, but it is not. It simply indicates that the question itself is misconceived because the basis on which God deals savingly with sinners is not justice, but mercy. It's not justice, it's mercy. Verses 17 and 18, God's sovereignty and human responsibility are using examples with, um, with Pharaoh. And he talks about Pharaoh and Pharaoh had a hard heart it's very important to start there. Pharaoh's heart was hard, and God used his hardened heart to show his power. So God hardened Pharaoh's heart that was already hardened, giving him over, as the word used, to his own stubbornness. Pharaoh decided to resist God, and God reinforced him in that position. He gave Pharaoh what he chose. And then he says, I've raised you up for a purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And he's quoting from Exodus 9, 16. He's talking to Pharaoh and he's saying, just as God 
wanted to do that. Uh, God, just as God mercifully has compassion on those he chooses to have compassion on. So he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of the things that's important to realize is that in scripture, there are people who have hardened hearts. Pharaoh's a great example of that. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and God let him go with that. God has mentioned before the Israelite, you are a stiff necked people. That's information. He allows Pharaoh to keep his hardened heart and even hardens it more in order to show God's power when he brings the Israelites out of Egypt and to show God's power when he rescues them because of the stubbornness of Pharaoh. God can do this and does do this. So turning to verses 19 through 21, God's will in both wrath and mercy, and here's where it gets hard again. And we can ask that question, why does God blame us? In fact, uh, Paul asks it, you know, why are we at fault? What? It seems like, well, there isn't anything that we could do because uh, God is going to be merciful or God is not or or, or, or this, we're hopeless. And yet um, Paul tells us that it's God who made us and God is, is the potter. We're just, we're just the clay. He said that God has made us and therefore has the right of ownership and God can do what God wants with that. That's difficult for us because we're only in chapter nine, but hang on, hang on. We're going to get through this. He, God is the creator. He is the divine potter and we are human clay. All by itself, this would be a sufficient answer to the question of fairness of why God still holds us accountable or blames us. Uh, I think about Job, who are you, oh man, that you should think that you could ask, why me? I'm in control here, said God. I know. I will answer you in my time, and it will make sense to you. So God's righteousness and holiness are evident in the noble person, purpose, and common use. And we look at Isaiah 29, 16, and 45, 9. You turn things upside down. It says, shall the potter be regarded as a clay? Shall the thing made say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of the one who formed it, he has no understanding? Woe to you who strive with your master earthen vessel with the potter. Does a clay say to the one who fashioned it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? We're the clay. It's an example not to be taken so, uh, so literally like, well, we can't do anything. We're just clay in, in God's hand. God is molding us. God is making us. And I, I'm not a potter, but I've seen potters make things. And until it goes into that fire, that clay can be molded again and again. And if a mistake is made, it, it can be recreated. Or more than even a mistake. I've seen people doing something perfect and all of a sudden it just falls apart. It's like, what happened? I think God has done everything for Israel. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, I don't think we believe in this Messiah. Thank you very much. And it's like, what happened? God is holding us accountable for our decisions. And yet I don't get this, God. I don't understand this. It just seems like I'm to blame it. And 
and we don't get the full picture. That's what Paul is trying to say. Don't lose heart. Don't think that you have, or that God has failed in any way. Um, God continues to very gently mold us and bring him into himself. Hang on there. Romans is about God's mercy, not deserve. It is more abundant um, than sin. God's mercy is greater than sin. You guys um, saw that in Romans chapter 5, the do not deserve. You saw that in chapter 3. And God um, breaks the power of sin in six, chapter 6, uh, verse 22 and 7, 6. And there is nothing that can thwart what God is going to do. And that is the chapter we just looked at last week. God deals with us, not on the basis of what we are, but on the basis of what he is. And that is a merciful father. Do not lose sight of that, no matter what happens or no matter the present condition. God is merciful. So verses 22 through 24. God's power and glory supersede wrath. God's power and glory supersede wrath. Wrath and mercy are both instrument of God's saving work in history. God's own character assures us um, that God will be faithful to his purpose and his promise, even if all humans prove false. Even if we blow it, God's purpose and his plan will not be thwarted. And Paul uses the word us, very important in verse 24. Paul uses the word us to show both Jew and Gentile are included, included as the church. In fact, out of the mercies of the Lord, we are not the church of Jews or Gentiles. We are the church of Jesus Christ, the church of Christ. The very end, verses 25 through 29, and thank you for your patience. I'm a little lengthy today. God calls together a remnant, and that's the promise that Hosea is quoted to show both Jew and Gentiles are included in God's grace and mercy in Hosea 2.23 and 1.10, and God accomplishes God's purpose through a diminished Israel. So even though the promise to Israel looks greatly diminished, nevertheless, God's grace prevails and, pers and preservation of a remnant testifies to the grace of God. Paul makes clear that this is not another issue that, that the Jews have been cut off. They're done. Don't ever, ever think that. This is not in the Old Testament, the Sodom and Gomorrah, where the, where they, the hospitality, which was the issue, was so bad. Their evil was so great that God was cutting them off forever. That is not what's going on here. It, the remnant testifies to the grace of God. It is not to be totally cut off. The Old Testament prophets developed the idea of a saved portion of Israel. And that's what I want to leave us with. Um, there are tons of scriptures in Isaiah and in Amos and in Micah where it talks about a saved portion of Israel, that Israel is redeemed, that Israel has its saved portion. The present believing remnant of Israel is not the last chapter. It seems so small, it seems so insignificant, but look 
back at verses one through five. Looking ahead, we will see the promise of God as Israel embraces the gospel. And that is in chapter 11. So I, I really want you to hang on. This is a difficult chapter. It's about the mercy of God. Paul uses history to tell us about it. But to know that God will call his people and his people will remain with God. And God will call from that remnant his people back to himself. Thanks be to God. Amen.